3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Today, it's Tuesday the 19th of April 2022, and it's 7am. My name is Fung. In the studios today are Evie and Carnegie. Good morning. 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 Um, how are we going this rainy morning? Hey, pretty good, although it feels like summer's finally over. Yeah, which, to be honest, I'm not mad about. I think autumn <laughs> in this city is really beautiful. Yeah. I yeah. spent um, the last week and last four days in Mount Beauty, and it was so spectacular with the autumn leaves because um, the landscape up there is super different. So there's the actual, like... You actually, it's quite European. I think that a lot of the plants are <laughs> mm. brought over yeah. from Europe, and it's yeah, just so spectacular. Were there a lot of people because of school holidays? Yes, that <laughs> <laughs> part not so spectacular. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I guess Evie, you were saying just before that, you know, a lot of people are choosing to go yeah, to regional. regional areas. Yeah, um, I've had. Most of my friends have sort of, if they're traveling, they've gone like just within the state um, and a couple of friends going up to, you know, Brisbane or Sydney to see their families have had a lot of trouble. Just if, with the flights at the moment are just ridiculous because um, there's been a, bit, a, sh- a shortage of airport staff and you know plane staff and that sort of thing. So there's been a lot of delays and cancellations and things like that. So... Um, yeah, it's been a bit hectic. I've got like lots of family members at the moment who've got COVID. So it's been a busy long weekend of mm. just ferrying stuff around. But yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And Friday I went to the football Carnegie and oh, yeah. absolute thrashing from I the know. Bulldogs. <laughs> Spectacular. Oh my God. I'm just sitting there with my head in my hands. <laughs> Um, well, let's just discuss what's coming up on the show. We're starting off by uh, revisiting um, an interview that Gemma and Sue had with Linda Fenton on Done By Law just the other week. Linda Fenton was the first Australian woman to sue her employer due to unfair dismissal while on maternity leave. So that's coming up first. Afterwards, we're going to hear from Ezekiel Thibault, who is a lecturer at the Lingnam University in Hong Kong, specialising in moral and political philosophy. And um, she and I caught up last week to talk about the the first round of the French presidential elections um, and just we talked about the political landscape in, in France just more generally. Afterwards, uh, at around 7.45, uh, we're going to hear from Caroline who is an educator living in the city of Port Phillip and I caught up with her to talk about um, something that happened to her recently. She got a complaint um, from Body Corporate asking her to take her political posters down um, and we talked about the importance of civic engagement and, <clears throat> you know, 
participating in the election, especially at this time. Um, and then at eight o'clock, Carnegie. Um, we'll be speaking with uh, Barrister Gemma Cavarella about living with uh, endometriosis and adenomyosis and why menstrual health is a workplace issue. Great. Uh, well, we'll be back with um, Linda Fenton on Done by Law right after this. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. In 1996, Linda Fenton was the first Australian woman to sue her employer due to unfair dismissal while on maternity leave. Now she has written her, about her story in a book called Strong Women Cry Too, Rising from the Black Hole. Linda joined Gemma and Sue on Dunbar Law on April 4th to talk about her 20-year legal and emotional journey. Done by Law has been on the air since 1980, giving listeners a unique and irreverent take on current legal news. Presented by the Federation of Community Legal Centres and a team of legal and non-legal presenters, the Done by Law team makes sense of everything from police powers, new graffiti laws to refugee law. Linda, tell us how all this started. What happened? Well, I'd always wanted to actually write a book um, about my court case, um, even though it was so many years ago now. But it wasn't until, you know, many years later that I actually discovered that I was the first woman to actually go through the courts um, and challenge a company while on maternity leave. Um, So I decided that I was going to write it and I'd written a few bits and pieces. Um, And over the years, many years of other workplace jobs, you know, different jobs I was in, um, and dealt with harassment and bullying and all sorts of different things. Um, I had quite a lot of stuff that I could write about. Um, but one of the reasons I actually really started writing is because I was starting to seek psychological help for my mental health issues and writing was obviously a, a good way of stop being consumed by the past and try and move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a stint in a psychiatric ward, which was um, a story in itself, I was encouraged to tell my story and not just about my court case, but about a lot of experiences that um, I've had in the workplace. Mm, wow. It's it's a big story and I guess um, the, a good place for us to start is with the court case. Um, so... Um, in the court case, so as we've said, uh, you went on maternity leave and um, while you were on maternity leave, in this is in 1996, is that right? Yep, that's right. Yep. While you were on maternity leave, you were made redundant and even though someone was actually hired to take your job. So we just want to explore that a little bit in the first yeah, sure. part of the program. So in the court case, AMCOR tried to make out that they had made you redundant for what they described valid, as valid reasons of operational requirements. And that's because while you're on maternity leave, they did a big company-wide restructure. Yeah. And you said 
that no, there was no such operational requirement and that they, your your basis for that was, well, you know, have you actually hired somebody to do my job? So that person kept their, that job in the restructure. So that job, your job, was obviously not redundant. And because of oh. this, you said that they basically sacked you because you were pregnant on maternity leave yes. and this was against the law. That's Is that all sort of a quick summary that yeah that's a pretty quick summary um you know back then even at the time you you know I didn't really even think about the whole discrimination side of it um and when I started asking a few more questions about why I had been chosen there were other people that had been put off not many though um and when I'd asked as to you know what were the reasons for why they chose me they just said that my job didn't exist. And obviously the lady that had um, taken over my job while I was on maternity leave had kept her job and I questioned that. There were letters to and fro that had, had taken place for me trying to get answers. They really, never really gave me an answer. They just said, no, your job doesn't exist. And they just stuck with that, stuck with that rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And I remember having a conversation with an operational manager and he advised me not to... Uh, waste my redundancy money on legal action and it was only then that I decided to see a solicitor so he in fact <laughs> he planted the seed he did he planted the seed oh, planted silly the seed. man <laughs> <laughs> and I went oh okay and uh obviously decided to go and see a solicitor and um because my work contact my work conduct was never raised with me during this time um they just kept saying my job didn't exist and when I finally saw a solicitor a solicitor um because of a lot of discussion that had taken place my unfair dismissal claim was made outside the 21 days that you have to launch a claim and so therefore and called the legal team fought for the fact that um I you know we had uh, lodged outside the 21 days um but because they could see the uh, that warrant you know there was a case here I was given an extension of time and so therefore the case actually went through um so the court said that yeah the, well the um <laughs> industrial relations Commission's made Commission. that uh, made that determination um, determination and you know when I look back at it now I mean that whole holding back on letters and not getting back to me on things was a deliberate ploy Yes. for it to go outside that 21 days. Yes. Mm. But that sort of, uh, that ultimately went against them in the end. Unfair dismissal is 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 a really sneaky, um, and it's still to this day, you know, 25, 30, more than 30, almost 30 years later, sorry. Um, yeah. Unfair dismissal, you know, the time you have to get your application in is is extremely fast. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, I'm sure it's a, it, it's much to the, um, benefit of employers in in those circumstances. I could see from the from the case notes, um, Linda, that you went to, you went to, you went to my solicitor. Well, I work for Slater and Gordon. I can see that you went to Slater's. Yes, and I did. I did. No win, no pay. You know, win, no pay. <laughs> um, and that Melinda Richards, her honour, Miss Melinda Richards, um, who's now a, a a justice of the Supreme Court, was your counsel at the time. 
Yes. Well, she was brought into it very late in the right. whole scheme of things. Things had been going on for months, you know, the whole toing and froing of information and and that between uh, legal teams. And yes. when I was, the day before court, um, I was made an offer, you know, I call it shut up money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> shut up and go know away. Know it well. Money. Know it very well. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't a, a life-changing amount of money and um, needed way more many noughts on it than for me to, to go down that path. And I just said no. Um, and then we were off to court. And then obviously she was brought into it very late in the mix. Okay. Um, well, yeah, it's so fabulous to have had someone um, like you with the gumption to, to do that because it obviously is rare um, because it's such an intimidating process in and of itself. Um, mm. So to have to say, no, this is, this is what I believe in and I'm, I'm ready to test, yep. test it. We, we all are having just returned uh, from maternity leave myself I thank you <laughs> um, for having the the bravery to do that so many years ago. Yeah, look, it, it's funny. I have so many people say the word brave, but that was very brave to do that and very brave to write my book and all that sort of stuff. But um, I don't know. I, I just I just knew I I wanted the answers. It was my, it was never about the money. It was never about wanting to get lots of money, and I knew I wouldn't get it anyway. I mean, I was well aware of the fact that um, that was the case. Uh, I wanted the management within the organisation to be accountable for the decisions that they made. Yes. And yes. and I got those answers. Yes. Mm. As much as it was gruelling, it was, it was hard, you know, like any court, anyone that goes through any kind of court action, it's, it's a, a difficult process. Uh, but if you, you know, you want answers, you, you're standing up for your own rights, then um, you just... Um, it, Got to do it. You've got to That's take it all away. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What was it that drove you to take that? Because you also mentioned in your book that you had experienced other kinds of um, workplace um, bad behaviour, I would describe it as, like bullying and mm. sexual harassment, but you didn't take any action about those. What? What Was there something about this or was it kind of like a build-up or something? Look, definitely a build-up. Um you know, I've got, you know, got some wonderful sexual harassment stories in in, in my book yes. that will just, you know, um, which I look back now and think I was brave to have, you know, dealt with those as well. But, but you yeah. know, back then and even now, I think a lot of people don't make complaints about things um, because they want to keep their job ultimately. Yeah. And, and that's fundamentally what it's, what it's about is, the person can make a complaint, whatever it may be, and in an organisation, whether it's bullying, discrimination, sexual harassment, there's a gamut of things, uh, you know, they can be made out to be the one that's just being a troublemaker and, um, yeah. you know, not towing the line and they're given a harder time and then ultimately they just leave and move on to another job. Yeah. Good old victim blaming. Yeah. yeah. Instead of, um, you know, actually, like I just look at it now and think how different things could have turned out if they had have just gone, yeah, look, we've, we've stuffed up here and we didn't really make the right decisions because ultimately the person who made the final decision to make me redundant had never met me. Mm. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. Um, he was the general manager of the organisation who um, started when I was on maternity leave. So he'd never met me. Mm-hmm. And um, where the previous general manager was, he was a tough guy, but he he um, recognised that I was working in a department with a lot of men. I was the only female in the uh, department of 20 men. And But he knew that I did the job well and worked hard and I think would, the situation would have been very different if um, if he had still been around. Um, but, but ultimately my boss as well, um, I just think he just found it a little bit inconvenient that I was going on maternity leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just wanted to move it on mm. and, oh, she'll be fine. She'll just want to stay and look after her baby. But, you know, I wanted, I, I loved my job and I wanted to go back. Mm. Let, let's go to, the, to that in a bit more detail. Um, Amcor, in reading through through the judgment, said that you weren't a team player um, and that there had been some difficulties, I guess, between you and the manager there, um, which they used to justify um, the reason of making you redundant. And they're um, classic um, sort of obfuscation things. They say, oh, well, there were all of these other difficulties. Um, did, was that... Was that hard to hear um, and to have that kind of hung out to dry a bit before the court and in a public setting? And obviously you disagree with that assessment. Um, how did you work through that? Well, no, nothing had ever been raised to me about my work, work performance, you know, not being a team player. None of that was, was raised um, when I was in the job or... Um, so when that all sort of come out in the court case, um, it really didn't hold much ground. I, it, it, because there was enough evidence to show that I had really good, you know, work approval, um, work approval, and your reviews. Your reviews, reviews. Yes, yes, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so none of that stuck at all. They were really just sort of grasping at straws in regards yeah. to that fact. Um, and even with my manager, was, we'd had a, we had a reasonable relationship. We'd worked together for um, almost five years. We had a reasonable rapport. You know, you had some great disagreements every now and again, but um, it only really got heated. Not well, yeah, I suppose it did get heated when I just about when I was going to go on maternity leave, because mm. it all just become a little bit too difficult for him to deal with. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting that the maternity leave seems to have been the trigger for lots of stuff that then, yeah, yeah which it, eventually. It, it <laughs> had you feared going, going on maternity leave, Linda? Was this something, was this a risk that you were aware of or did you think um, that you were a protected worker and that you'd, you'd be okay? Oh, oh, look, when I got made redundant, it was like getting hit by a lightning bolt. Yeah. Because um, yeah, I knew I was good at my job. I was well liked by my clients. You know, I'd almost doubled my sales um, budgets in the time that I was there. Um, they all knew I was going to have a baby. I had childcare set up. I had it all. The plans were all there for me to come back to work. And so. Yeah, being told that you just being made redundant, your job doesn't exist anymore, and not re- and not having any discussion or about why they chose you or 
mm. um, anything like that, which, in fact, you know, comes up into the decision that the process that they had oh. was pretty pathetic. They didn't yeah. really have a process at all. At all. And mm. that become glaringly obvious through the court case. Wow. So, Lindy, won. Lots of people. Won. Yeah, yeah. Lots of people would probably think that's great and that's the end of the story, but your book covers so much more. So tell us a little bit more about how your life changed. Yeah, look, um, I, you know, was obviously in a spin about it all. I didn't really discuss it with too many people. There wasn't like there was this big party or anything and, you know, woohoo, I won. Um, a lot of people thought I was pretty nuts to do the whole thing in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, at least I got the answers that I, I was looking for. And I lost a lot of trust, obviously, in employees and was pretty Employers, you mean? Employers, sorry. Employers, <laughs> sorry. Yes, and right. so I did a lot of temporary work, worked in a lot of different places just on a contract basis because I just didn't want to get involved. And I mm -hmm. saw even more, you know, I was trying to, well, at the time I was trying to look for somewhere I could, you know, and a, a trusted employee, employer, and discovered along many years that they're few and far between mm -hmm. and that there are way too many organisations out there that just do not deal with all sorts of issues when it comes to people complaining um, about anything that's happening in the workplace. And I had a number of other things that had happened to me and lost other jobs, um, just different things that had happened with sexual harassment and this was I even thought, after your case? Yeah, even after my case. Wow. So I was pretty disillusioned with life and thought I was a big girl with, you know, big <laughs> shoulders and I could deal with it all, but I was basically slowly melting down and mm. was dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety that I really wasn't dealing with and... Subsequently, my marriage broke down, uh, that all fell apart and I just went on this journey, don't you love that word, journey, of <laughs> self-discovery. So I, um, yeah, was in a, lot, in a bad place and had to actually get a lot of psychological help and um, ended up in a psych ward and... Um, yeah, just trying to get my life back together because a lot of people don't deal with their mental health and I am well and truly guilty of that. Well, Linda, I'm so sorry to hear that. That just sounds like it was a hugely negative experience after what should have been, you know, a crowning glory kind of moment um, to have had that that spiral afterwards is really disheartening. Um, but also good on you for calling it and seeing it and getting this, the seeking out the help and support that you needed to turn it around. Yeah, look, I, I look back at it now and I'm, you know, I'm proud of what I did. I'm proud that I stood up for myself and called them out. And it was, a, you know, it's a big organisation. Amcor are huge. So, you know, to take on the big boys um, and win, I take pride in that. You absolutely and, should. Um, yeah. And part of the reason why I wanted to get this out now is I want to really encourage others to do exactly the same mm. and to not put up with this kind of behaviour. Um, and, you know, we've had so much happen in the last 
couple of years with all the horrible bullying and workplace um, horrible workplaces in Canberra for of, of all mm, places mm. and that has really highlighted the fact that it's a major issue everywhere that that many organisations just aren't dealing with properly. Mm. They just don't seem to be able to deal with treating women in a professional respectful way in so many places you know. Yeah and, and I just you know, I mean, my case is back in 1996, which to some people is, you know, <laughs> a lifetime ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but in trying to get all this, the book sort of together in the last couple of years, because with COVID, obviously, um, I had the time to do it and really concentrate on it. All these things just kept coming up in the media about all these issues mm-hmm. with women and how badly they're treated in the workplace. And it just it just spurred me on to go, you've definitely got to finish this book and get mm. this story out there and talk about your experiences mm-hmm. because it's even more relevant today than than ever. Mm. Especially the the what strikes me about it is the the twenty years that this of your life that this sort of carved out and and um, a twenty year impact. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we, and it's all about burying it. You know, people want to yeah. try and bury their pain. And um, I've said to people on numerous occasions that, um, you know, you can keep digging and putting dirt on top of that pain, but eventually it just comes back up through the surface, through the soil, and it rears its ugly head again, unless you actually face it and deal with it and part of writing this book has been a very cathartic process for me Mm. um, in you know dealing with a lot of things that have happened in my life Um, Mm. and also to just how others deal with someone that's got a mental health issue and Mm. that as much as we talk about a lot of mental health issues now uh, more so than ever because of COVID um, it still has a huge stigma about it and um, people still really hide their pain. So we just heard from Linda Fenton speaking with Gemma and Sue on Done By Law about her experience of being unfairly dismissed while on maternity leave. Linda's book is called Strong Women Cry Too, Rising from the Black Hole. For any listeners who would like to look into this case, the citation is Jordan v. Amcor Limited, 1997, IRCA 153, dated 2nd of May, 1997. You can listen to Done By Law every Tuesday from 6 to 6.30pm and you can visit the audio archive on 3cr.org.au slash Done By Law. Coming up now, we've got a song by Jersey, sorry, a song by Barry, who is a Brooklyn-based artist, and it is their new single called Jersey. Like some slow pace 
Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Before that, we heard the song Jersey by Barry. So Ezekiel Chibo is a lecturer at the Lingnam University in Hong Kong, specialising in moral and political philosophy. We caught up last week um, to, uh, to discuss the French presidential elections. While Ezekiel was a volunteer with Jean-Luc Mélenchon's campaign, the focus of our conversation was on the election as a whole, the overall political landscape in France and the social issues that people are concerned with um, going into this election. This interview was initially recorded last week on the 12th of April. The first round of the French presidential elections uh, happened only a few days ago on the 10th of April. Could you please talk us through the results of that first round? Yeah, sure. Um, So we always have two elections when we have a presidential election. Uh, We have the first round, which is to select the two uh, first candidates. Um, This year we had 12 candidates total. So quite a lot of of people, they each represent, um, well, different parties with all their variations and then, you know, diversity. So, um, but then eventually, so we elect two of them. The second election is supposed to uh, elect one person. Um, So what happened is that we have the exact same results, basically, as um, last presidential election five years ago, which is, um, a duel between Macron, the current president, and, and Marine Le Pen. Um, and then for the rest, it's a little bit different. So the, um, the candidate of La France Insoumise, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, was the third. And he was really, really close to uh, <clears throat> Marine Le Pen, who was second, I think by about like 1% of the vote, something like that. And then the other candidates were far behind. So I think 
the number four is um, got about seven percent of the votes, and then the rest is you know maybe they've done five percent, four percent, two percent, and so on. So the three main candidates got about something like between 22 and 28 percent of the votes, but eventually, uh, yeah, there's only Macron and Le Pen uh, left. So you were saying that the the results are quite similar to the last election in that uh, Macron and Le Pen will face off in the second round on the 24th of April. Um, Just looking at the scope of candidates in general, were there any major similarities or differences between the last election and this current one? So... Jean-Luc Mélenchon was also running five years ago, and he got also about 19 to 20% of the vote. So um, he got a little more this, this time. Uh, then, so then you have all the traditional parties. So you have, well, you have a Green Party, um, which last year was represented by the Socialist Party. So they, they kind of got together together. Um, and this year you have a socialist party that is different. Another big thing is that those traditional parties like the Socialist Party and um, Les Républicains, which is a traditional right-wing party, um, both of these parties have uh, completely crumbled. And, and they used to be, you know, the two main parties in France, um, as long as I can remember until um, Macron arrived five years ago and everything got reshaped a little bit. Um, so the Republicans, the right-wing party, got less than 5%, which is unprecedented. This is, this is absolutely insane because even just <clears throat> five years ago, you would have never thought this could be possible. And the Socialist Party, uh, which was the party of François Hollande, who was president before Macron, uh, only got even not even two percent of the vote um so this is really new and this has only been confirming this dynamic which we started to see um five years ago that people are a little fed up with those these traditional decotons then you have also new things like uh another far right um party extremely conservative so used to have uh, the far right party um Front national which became Rassemblement which is Marine Le Pen's party. And now we have um, this guy called Eric Zemmour, who is a journalist originally and who is basically a, a public speaker. He's, he's, um, he has, like, he's always on TV, uh, mainly commenting on, on the news, whatever is happening. And he has been a big media phenomenon um, because of his uh, often very controversial. Uh, very conservative, you know, um, input on, on everything. And so he has been running as another far-right candidate uh, trying to compete with Marine Le Pen. Um, a program that is a little different economically, I would say, but in terms of um, values, in terms of social policies, uh, it is pretty much the same. Um, so... It's, I would say this election is both different and similar in, in, in different ways that are helpful answer. Thank you for that. And thank you for summarising the shift towards newer parties, the fall of some of those traditional parties that you were describing, and also some of the new candidates that have come up on the far right. 
Can you tell us what are some of the issues that people in France are particularly concerned about this year? Well, if you look at polls, uh, when people are being asked, I think one of the main things has been what we call pouvoir d'achat, which is simply um, the capacity to afford things, you know, to pay uh, your bills, to pay your rent, to um, pay for what for the cost of living in general. Um, this seems to be a big concern of people. Um, prices have been rising, uh, salaries haven't, you know, and um, and I think there is a big feeling of general anxiety about this, about just not being able um, to to make it, even when you have a full time job. Uh, minimum wage in, in France is very low, and it. it if you're a, for example, a single parent and you earn minimum wage, it's very even impossible uh, for you to to simply afford basic necessities. Um, so I would say that's the main uh, issue, and I think people are also concerned with, you know, the lack of public services in certain areas, uh, the fact that um, the hospitals have been, um, you know. Um, for example, many uh, hospital beds have been closed. Uh, cuts have been made on hospital expenses in general, health expenses. People, especially right now during a pandemic, people are very worried about this. Um, and everything that has to do with um, the things people need, like education, healthcare, services, and that they feel are disappearing, in fact. And, Remember during the Yellow Vest movement, it was a little bit about this cost of living rising and public servicing services disappearing. And that, that was the cause of this big anger. And I think this anger is still here. Um, then if you, you know, hear far right candidates, they will always tell you no. This is the main concern of people is insecurity, uh, which is a big umbrella term that they use to kind of, um, in my opinion, scare people off and um, that I don't think is very accurate as it doesn't necessarily describe what people are sincerely concerned about. Yeah, so this, this is my opinion. Then um, I think if you look at the polls, uh, the cost of living it is really the main concern. And just before we finish our interview today, I did want to look ahead to the second round of the election, which is happening on the 24th of April. Uh, as you said earlier, Ezekiel, uh, it's going to be between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. Regardless of who wins um, on the 24th of April, do you think that there has been any shift in the political landscape in France, just looking at the uh, first round election results and just overall, you know, sentiment. Um, do you think there has been any sort of shift in in any direction? Um, I think people are more fed up with Macron than they were obviously five years ago because they didn't know him. Um, so this is new. That now we know, and, and many people just know they don't want him. Uh, unfortunately, that might mean more people will vote for Le Pen. So I think um, if he wins, he, he might not win as easily as he did last time. So this is new. Um, and the rise of the far right is extremely uh, you know, concerning. Um, and 
I wouldn't say this is new because this is something that we saw coming. Um, and I have no idea who's going to win that election, to be honest. Um, but I think, uh, well, I am very pessimistic, honestly. I, I, I don't think, uh, you know, the situation is going to improve anytime soon uh, now that we have this, uh, this duel again. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens in a couple of weeks' time. But for now, um, I just wanted to say thank you, Ezekiel, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast and um, giving us a bit more of an insight into the French political landscape and uh, this election this year. Hopefully we can have you back on the show again soon. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. I'm very happy uh, to talk about this. Thank you for having me. That was Ezekiel Thibault speaking to us about the 2022 French presidential elections. The second round will take place on Sunday, the 24th of April, between the incumbent Emmanuel Macron and third-time candidate Marine Le Pen. Marie-Pierre Kakoma, known professionally as Luce and the Yakuza, is a Congolese-Belgian singer, rapper and songwriter. She's also a model and an artist, and this song, Solo, is from her 2020 album, Gore. Je sens ton regard et ton cœur qui se gèle. 
Parle, allez, dis-moi ce qui te gêne Je sens ton regard et ton cœur qui se gèle Quoi que l'on dise, on restera solo Quoi que l'on fasse, on restera solo Solo, 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 solo Quoi que l'on dise, on restera solo Quoi que l'on fasse, on restera solo Solo, 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 solo Quoi que l'on dise, on restera solo Quoi que l'on fasse, on restera solo Solo, 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 solo Quoi que l'on dise, on restera solo. Quoi que l'on fasse, on restera solo. Solo, 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 solo. So that was Luce and the Yakuza. Um, that was a song called Solo from her 2020 album Gore. On the weekend, I caught up with Caroline, who is an educator living in the city of Port Phillip. Recently, Caroline received a complaint from Body Corporate regarding the political posters she has in her window. One poster features a, um, a local candidate and the other a union poster. In our interview, we discuss this situation um, in a bit more detail and uh, we also talk about the importance of civic engagement and the freedom to engage in political debate leading up to a federal election. Good morning, Caroline. Do you want to start by introducing yourself uh, to our listeners? Yeah, hi, Fong. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Caroline, and I am originally from New Zealand, but I've been living in Australia and Melbourne particularly for 30-plus years. I've spent some time recently working in a remote Aboriginal community for a couple of years, and I've come back to Melbourne, uh, moved to the city of Port Phillip, um, and working. I'm an educator have worked as a primary school teacher for many years and am currently working um, as, as a project officer uh, in education. Awesome, thank you for that. So we're here today to talk about civic engagement, um, engaging in politics and in the election more broadly. We started talking about this um, because of something that happened to you not that long ago. Uh, do you want to describe to us what occurred uh, a few weeks ago? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we got talking because I had um, been doing some voluntary work and if, sort of the next step from that, um, I said that I would put some signage in my apartment, and which I did, and they dropped it off and I have a you know, nice big window and I said, yeah, I can take a, a large sign and I'll take one of the smaller ones that they dropped off first. And then Another friend dropped off a union poster as well and I put those up in my window which faces onto the street. Anyway, the next thing I know I get an email from the body corp saying that I'm not allowed to have those signs in my window even though it's inside my own property and I own my property and that I had to take them down. Um, I then said to them I would like to seek some more advice about that before I take them down and I got another email from them saying that they had had a complaint from obviously um, I presume and I you know a bit of detective work that it was from a neighbour who owns some of the properties in the same block and that they had put in a complaint to the body corp and the body corp said to me that um, I needed to take them down and we went on to further investigation they sent me and they've sent me a copy of the deed um, which under one of the covenants says that um, nobody is allowed to have 
uh, signs or advertising um, either in or around the service company. Mm. So it seems to me that walking around everywhere in Melbourne at the moment, there are a lot of political signs up, um, you know, in the front yard of many homes, you see posters for all parties, really, that are represented. What do you know about the difference between having a poster up in a house that you own versus, let's say, an apartment that you own? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're fortunate or wealthy enough to own a property uh, that is your own title and you've got a front yard, you're able to put a placard up. It's your decision. You can add a placard. If you live in a block of flats um, or you have got a body corp that is um, that controls the legislation and the rules around that property, then you have to live within those rules. And so they can dictate that you are not allowed to have that freedom of expression. And then just more broadly speaking, you were saying earlier that um, you know, you're an educator and we were discussing the importance of um, being engaged in politics and in the election more generally speaking. How do you feel that this has an impact on, on that type of engagement? Yeah, massively. So as a, you know, previous, as a teacher and, you know, as I remain, I call myself an educator and I'm still a registered teacher, is that the whole fundamental um, underpinning of the Australian curriculum is about teachers really developing students to become active citizens. And for that purpose is that active citizenship means about engaging in a democratic process. And so for me, I feel really passionate about it because I actually think we need to be more politicised and we need to be able to engage in unbiased debate, but being able to talk to people about, um, you know, the policies that we want to see and how we feel about what's happening in our communities. And if we can't even put a sign up in our window, how are we actually building around a collective understanding, understanding of policies. And I think it really reflects how our elections are moving into this sort of populist uh, arena and rather than actually talking about policies and talking about um, how our societies are operating, then I think that that um, is, you know, really hindering that. And I think that we should be doing everything to speak up and fight for the right to actually discuss politics, particularly leading up to an election. Mm. Um, we've also seen, you know, that when it comes to the wealth disparity in our society, that those with money are able to advertise, buy billboards, um, have a wider reach. Can you talk a bit about that, uh, I guess, the difference in, in, in wealth and, and what um, liberties that affords you when it comes to your situation? So from my point of view, where... I've worked really, really hard to finally be able to buy my own property at 58 and finally got an apartment and to find that I'm not able to put things up in my own house and to, to do that, but I can look at my neighbours across the street who are able to put their political signs up and they are able to engage in that. So I feel um, that wealth is actually really a determinant around what sort of voice you have and what sort of engagement you have. And so um, 
I think we should be challenging that because it's not just about a sign, but it's about the ability to talk to other people and to meet other people. And if you don't have the opportunity to go out to places and to engage in events that are happening around uh, the city or around, you know, if you're in a rural or regional area and you don't have that opportunity, this is actually why I live on a fairly busy street and since I put the signs up, I've had people taking photos, they've stopped and talked to me, they've wanted to have a conversation, I've heard people laughing at one of the signs and... Um, you know, that it's engaging them and it's mm. actually creating a sense of people being able to talk about it and which is so important leading up to the election. Mm. It seems that leading up to the election, it's it's even more crucial to, to be able to engage in political debate and, and to have signs up in your property if, if that's what you want to do. Are there any policies or laws that you're aware of that could help you keep these signs up? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one one of the things I'm looking at, and if there's any listeners out there that actually have uh, an understanding or, um, you know, the legal background, I'd love to be able to hear from people about it. But um, one of the things I do know is that Australia doesn't have uh, a right to freedom of speech, and so freedom of speech doesn't exist in our legislation. But what we do have is an implied... Um, ability to engage in political communication. My understanding of that is that it's actually not legislation for an individual but for organisations and companies. Interestingly, the block of flats I'm in is under a stratum title and not a strata title, which means we operate as a service company. So technically, if we're a company, maybe the um, implied ability for political communication could be brought into this case. Um, and so I'm not, you know, 100% sure how that, how that works as well. If there are other people who have found themselves in a similar situation, you know, if there's something that they want to do about this, uh, what would you recommend as first steps? I think one of the things that I'm going to go back a bit of a step and have a look at, um, I'm going to actually reach out to the organisation whose signs I have up and I'm going to have a conversation to see if they know about it because I have done some research and there's been other people that have gone to court to fight for the right to have signs up. Um, And I know one of them was uh, an independent candidate that did it, so it's not so much the individual here. Look, the other thing I wanted to bring up was that People said to me, well, what about if you have, um, you know, someone put up an ultra-right poster in the block of flats? And I said, well, that's illegal. Mm. You know, you're actually not allowed to post um, fascist memorabilia or fascist signage around the place. And I do recognise that you have to respect other people's viewpoints. But if we're living in a society that cannot put up a poster and have a respectful conversation about our uh, country governance and around who we're going to elect, it is absolutely um, questioning our ability to live in a democratic society. Mm. If we cannot put posters up, and as one of my neighbours who supports me and what is happening here said, what is the difference from me having a sign up that is facing the street to somebody being able to see a sign on my lounge room wall um, and would they have the right to take that down as well? Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And 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 like you said, um, I mean, we are 
in the middle of an election. It's been called for May 21, so it is coming up. There are a lot of crucial debates happening, and so, as you said, it is really important um, and should be our right that we are able to engage in those discussions. Yeah, and I just lastly, Fong, just to say that, you know, if the thing that I'm thinking about doing is actually putting my hand up to have an information stall um, somewhere that I can be on the footpath maybe or on the street, um, you know, to actually engage with people and talk to them on the street. So if I can't have something in my window, all it's going to lead me to do is actually to become more active and more engaged and fight for the right to actually debate and discuss policy and politics. Mm. Well, on that note, we might end our interview there, Caroline, but I'd be interested in catching up with you again in a couple of weeks um, to see... uh, to see what the outcome is regarding the political posters you have in your window. But for now, thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR. Thanks, Fong, and uh, keep up the activism. That was a conversation that I had with Caroline, who is an educator and City of Port Phillip resident. We were talking about the complaint she received uh, for having political posters in her window um, in the apartment that she owns. Uh, We're now going to go to a track, Evie. Before we go to the track, um, just what an amazing woman. Just, It's always so exciting to see people who are just like, just in, in the community, just taking a stand like that. It's just so cool. For sure. Um, now we're going to get a song from Rainbow Chan, who is a vocalist, producer and multidisciplinary artist. Uh, the, this next song, Heavy, comes from her 2021 EP, Stanley.
So that was Rainbow Chan with Heavy. Gemma Cavrella is a barrister who practices in public law, including discrimination and sexual harassment matters. Gemma is also the chair of Liberty Victoria's Government Regulation and Equality Committee and a supervisor for Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project. Gemma also has endometriosis and adenomyosis and advocates for people who menstruate to be treated better within the workplace. Gemma's on the show this morning to talk to us about why uh, menstrual health for women and gender diverse people is a workplace issue. Welcome to the show, Gemma. Thanks so much for having me, Carnegie. Um, so, as I mentioned, you um, live with both endometriosis and adenomyosis. I think people are now a bit familiar with endo, but can you tell our listeners a bit more about what adenomyosis is? Yeah, so, I mean, um, colloquially, it's referred to as endo's um, evil twin sister, um, <laughs> which gives you some idea of, uh, well, no idea really, but you get a sense the fact that it's not a good thing to have. Um, so whereas endo is basically the body um, producing cells that are like the cells that are your um, the lining of your uterus in the wrong spot, so those, those cells then um, respond to the hormones uh, at period time and go to swell and bleed, but they're not in the uterus and so have nowhere to go and they, and they cause... Um, lesions and um, all kinds of painful issues are basically sores inside the body. Um, adenomyosis is, um, is basically where those cells, instead of just superficially sitting in the wrong parts of the body, actually um, go into the muscle wall of the uterus. So the reason that it's, um, it's referred to as the evil twin sister is that... Um, you know, endometriosis is is an issue with really um, insufficient um, medical responses available. There's really no, um, there's no early detection test. There's no uh, effective treatment really, and there's certainly no cure. Adenomyosis is even harder because what they can do for endo is go in and either burn the endometriosis cells off or cut them off. But once they start growing through a muscle. Um, it takes that option away, so it's harder to treat, and it's um, it's a bit trickier to diagnose as well. So um, it has really similar symptoms to endo. It results in really debilitating um, pain, uh, and um, yeah, unfortunately, it's very hard to to treat. So some people um, end up having hysterectomies because obviously, if you take away um, the uterus, then that takes away the adenomyosis. Um, but you know that's a, a pretty radical step, and and also you know the reality is it's something that is very difficult to uh, obtain. Not a lot of doctors will actually um, give people hysterectomies, even when they say I don't want to have kids or I'm done having kids. It, it's a really difficult um, medical uh, treatment option to actually to actually receive. Yeah, absolutely, and um, you know, keeping in line with years of um, women's health not being taken seriously, um, you know, like these shouldn't be the only options that people have at this point in time. Um, What has your experience been with doctors? Are they knowledgeable about um, endo and adenomyosis? Like, have they been able to identify the issues and help you? No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Short answer, no. I don't want to kind of you know, bash doctors, but um, 
the average experience is that it takes more than 10 years to get a diagnosis of, of either endo or adeno. Um, and certainly that was my experience. For me, it, it was um, more than 10 years that it took. Um, so, um, and, you know, I have to say that part of the, um, part of, I think part of the picture of uh, starting to address these issues is really um, destigmatising, uh, you know, talking about periods. So, mm. you know, it feels, um, it, for some people it might feel weird to have me talk about my period on air, but, you know, I, I got my period when I was um, 13 and initially my, my periods weren't painful. Uh, I had, you know, fairly run-of-the-mill um, experiences of menstruation and it wasn't until I was, um, I think, between 16 and 17 I started to um, experience pain. And from that time, my pain really ramped up. I, I remember that happening over the space of a year, going to a point where I really couldn't function properly when I had my period and talking to doctors about that really netted absolutely zero um, results. They did what's very, very typical for people who go in with menstrual symptoms, which is that they um, they put me on the pill. Um, and really what that does is it kind of masks the symptoms. Um, you know, so I guess it, it can be slightly beneficial, but it comes with a whole heap of side effects. Um, and in the end, for me, uh, yeah, it took, I think, 11 or 12 years to get that first diagnosis of endometriosis and it wasn't actually until during the lockdown that I got diagnosed with adenomyosis um, which you know I, I almost am hesitant to count the years back <laughs> because it, it reminds me of <laughs> uh, the fact that I'm getting older but you know I, I'm in my mid-30s and and the idea that it takes that long to get a diagnosis is most both mind-boggling and, and completely common yeah. and you know it needs to be said that um, you know, people of all genders um, can and do get endo and adeno, um, but it also needs to be said that because it's um, typically been an issue associated with women's health, that's, you know, that's fair and squarely why it's been really neglected and, and why doctors don't take people seriously when they walk in and say that they are in um, excruciating pain. Exactly, and that ties into why it's not considered a workplace issue as well. Um, like I mentioned, you're a supervisor for Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project, which advocates for menstrual leave and wants to ensure that you know appropriate, flexible working arrangements are offered in Australian workplaces. Um, just hearing you describe your experiences and the, and the level of pain that you live with um, every month, um, it's a bit you know, shocking to think that this is not catered to in the workplace. Um, are there examples of other countries um, that do implement menstrual leave and that we can maybe use here? Yeah, so there are a few different countries that have it, Carnegie. I think, um, you know, some of the really interesting stuff is around how it works once it's in place. So um, there are <laughs> there are some countries, and I should say that Asian countries have really been the leader in this regard. I know that in white Australia, we would probably have a tendency to look to places like the UK and and the states um, as as generally leaders. They are they are not the leaders in in this regard. Um, but it is interesting to see, you know, how well utilised it is. So there's, there are a few countries that have have brought in menstrual leave, but um, 
but in circumstances in which um, people who who menstruate really aren't taking up um, the use of the leave. And so that's why the report, um, and I should say I had um, nothing to do with authoring the report. I was the supervisor of the yeah. group who wrote it and some really extraordinary um you know, early career um, lawyers and, and others uh, authored this report through uh, Liberty Victoria's um, Rights Advocacy Project. And what they have really done is is talked about those kind of different pieces that need to go into the puzzle. So really um, removing some of the taboo and stigma about periods in, in the workplace, um, but, you know, also then bringing in these options for people to have flexible work arrangements and, and additional leave, and not just for conditions like endometriosis and adenomyosis, but just generally to do with um, with menstruation and painful periods. Uh, and that really is important given how difficult it can be to get a diagnosis. You don't, you don't want to tie this type of leave to a formal diagnosis mm. um, for exactly... Um, exactly that that reason, but yeah, the report's really excellent and really thorough, um, and it looks through issues like um, absenteeism and presenteeism. So that notion that where you've got a workforce, a part of your workforce that are in um, chronic pain, uh, it will not just be something that can be swept under the carpet. So whether you address it or not, it's going to be having impacts on your workers. Um, in terms of them being at work while they're too unwell to really be, um, you know, meaningful, mean, meaningfully doing their work, um, or you know, taking um, time off and, and running through their sick leave, which was, um, you know, my experience when I was an employee. Yeah, and I mean, just based on that, it sounds like to me that that would also benefit the employers. Um, so it's not just a benefit for employees, but for employers as well. Um, how would having menstrual leave benefit you? Like, what difference would it make to your life? Yeah, so I, I'm self-employed now, so <laughs> I'm, I'm my own boss, so um, it's kind of a bit beyond me, but, you know, I feel really passionately about advocating for, for other people who menstruate um, having access to this leave. Um, you know, before I became a barrister when I was an employee, um you know, what I had was the experience of um, being someone who just perennially ran out of sick leave. Um, and that was primarily due to the fact that I needed to take leave for things like surgery. So I had um, a bit of a rough trot where I had to have um, three surgeries in a row that were unexpected. Uh, and what that meant was that I ripped through all of my leave and by the time the third surgery came around um, I was staring down the barrel of taking unpaid leave. Now you know it needs to be said that I'm a, a trained lawyer, I am relatively wealthy um, and I'm wife so you know I had all those markers of privilege but it was really dreadful to be in a situation where I was facing the loss of my income um, because of an illness that really I had absolutely no control over. I was just following what the doctors said in that I needed to have these surgeries to to deal with this um, this illness that I have. Mm. So, you know, I think that that's an example. And then, um, you know, what was really startling to me was that all of the men around me, and I was very lucky to be in a very supportive and, and lovely workplace, 
all of the men around me um, kept telling me that they had just copious amounts of leave, of, of sick leave banked up, and that they just wished that they could share some of their leave with me because, you know, they had 60 days of leave or whatever it was that they um, that they probably were never going to need. And for me, that really um, demonstrates the gendered element of this, that, mm. that it is something that needs to be taken seriously um, to support uh, people who menstruate, and, of course, that includes women uh, in the workplace, but then, of course, um, you know, being a supportive workplace that really takes into account the holistic needs of your employees um, makes you a more attractive workplace, and, and this is um, something that's addressed very well in the report, uh, and makes you more likely to retain good staff. Yeah, so the report, um, it has some proposed reforms to the Fair Work Act. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Um, yeah, I won't take you through the details of the um, the actual reforms. Um, kind of gives safe to say that I would encourage people to go and actually have a look at the report um, because it it does far more justice than I could do to the to the actual details um, of that reform. Um, but what it basically does is it is it looks through um, a couple of stages of of bringing about change in in this regard, and and that is. Um, some proposed changes to the Fair Work Act um, to make the issue of of leave um, more equitable. Um, it looks through the potential impacts in terms of um, discrimination, uh, looking at, um, at at the notion of this kind of this situation that we see playing out quite unfairly um, between different genders. Um, in terms of a, a discriminatory issue, an indirect discrimination issue, uh, and and then also gives some really fantastic resources um, to employers and employees uh, who want to um, put in place a, um, a a program or policy for menstrual leave. And and it should be said that um, we did a really fantastic um, launch event with. Um, with the Health Services Union and also uh, who, are, who are campaigning um, for more menstrual leave uh, and also the Victorian Women's Trust um, who have brought in menstrual leave and, and they um, spoke of it as only only a positive um, for them and, and something that they, um, you know, really intend to, to um, take forward because it's, it's been from their perspective as an employer, um, a really positive thing to implement. So all of those resources are, um, are in in the report and, yeah, the, the hope of the team who drafted it was that it could be a very useful, um, really, like, toolkit uh, to organisations and, and people who want to work towards implementing this in their workplace. It's a great report. Um, we will link to it in our show notes later today for any listeners who want to read it and find out more, um, as well as to the panel discussion that happened on Thursday, the 10th of March. Um, that's all we have time for this morning, Gemma. Thank you so, so much for sharing your experiences on air. I think it makes a big dent in um, destigmatizing periods and just talking about menstruation and normalizing it and hopefully it will help us get to a less, um, you know, people that will be able to just talk about it openly and it will lead to actual change for women and gender diverse people. So thank you very much.
Thanks for hosting the discussion. I think I agree. It's really important to talk about this stuff loudly and proudly. Thanks, Carnegie. So that was Barrister Gemma Caffarella, um, who is also a chair for Liberty Victoria's Government Regulation and Equality Committee and a supervisor for the Rights Advocacy Project. And um, if any uh, listeners out there are interested in the report that Gemma and Carnegie discussed in the interview, um, they can go back to uh, what the episode from I think it was the 22nd of March that we had. We spoke with one of the report's authors, um, Shannon Bethune, uh, who went into that report in more detail. So thanks for that, Carnegie. Uh, we'll be back with the news headlines right after this. <laughs> Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically source cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Before we go today, let's just have some news headlines as well. Um, over the weekend, Israeli forces raided the al Asqa Mosque. Um, over 150 Palestinians were injured and detained after Israeli police entered the mosque compound before dawn um, over the Easter weekend. Israeli forces raided the compound in occupied East Jerusalem, with medics reporting that at least 158 Palestinians injured in the ensuing violence as hundreds were detained. The Islamic endowment that runs the site said Israeli police entered in force before dawn on the Friday as thousands of worshippers were gathered at the mosque for early morning prayers. Uh, to be doing this during Ramadan is just, you know, such a hor- horrible, you know, disrespectful crime, especially on occupied ground. There has also been a spate of violence against Muslims all over India during the Hindu festival of Ram Navmi, which celebrates the birthday of the Hindu god Ram. Um, mobs of men have been harassing, intimidating and provoking people in mosques and in Muslim communities. Um which has led to rioting and violence against Muslims, particularly in states where the current government um, is in charge. Um, Mosques and houses have been set on fire and Muslims are being accused of violence and their homes are being bulldozed um, by authorities in these states. So they're just trying to flip the narrative um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty devastating to mm. see. Yeah. Um yesterday um Australia dismantled a major barrier to international tourists visiting uh, the country. More than 2 years after the pandemic started, overseas travelers now no longer need to provide a negative pre-departure COVID test 
uh, before flying. So that means travellers can, you know, they don't have to um, use rats or take PCR tests, uh, which had to be taken within 72 hours of boarding a flight um, with a positive result. You know, uh, it means that a lot of people have had to cancel their flights um, coming into Australia. Of course, um, this doesn't mean that um, there are different um, qualifications required for going overseas. I know that, you know, for some other countries within the Asian Pacific region, um, you still need to have a negative test for 72 hours leading up to your departure. Um, in so far as just protecting yourself when it comes to going on domestic and international flights, it's still recommended that you uh, mask up um, and take preventative rats uh, just in case. And then lastly, just a reminder that tomorrow, uh, which is Wednesday, the 20th of April, between 12pm and 1pm, there is a free online discussion hosted by the Victorian Women Lawyers um, uh, to discuss the um, expansion of the Damefields Frost Centre um, and why we should oppose the expansion of the state's maximum security prison for women. There are a number of really amazing um guests who are going to be speaking, including uh, Vicky Roach, Jill Pryor, Sarah Stilianos and Karen Fletcher. So this is a digital webinar and you will have to register um, and you can do that via the Victoria Women Lawyers website or if you have a look at the show notes later this morning, we can include a link to that event. Um, uh, Registered attendees will receive a Zoom link via email um, to access the the panel event. Um, While it is free, guests are invited to make an optional donation to um, Build Homes, to the Build Homes Not Prisons campaign. Um, But it's looking like it's going to be a really important discussion on how the current incarceration system impacts women and the reasons why that we should all be... um, uh, we should stop and be opposed to the expansion of the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre. Um, and regular listeners of 3CR will know that you know each year um, the Beyond the Bars project does um, have broadcasting from the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre as well. Um, one little final bit of news as well. Um, this week, as you know, we're in the middle of the federal election campaign. Today is the last day in which candidates can nominate for um, election. Um, the Liberal candidate for Warringah, Catherine Devies, has vowed to fight on uh, after making various you know, offensive um, statements online. She has been asked to step down by other Liberal Party members, both within state and federal, um, the state and federal Liberal Party. Um, she says that she's not going anywhere, even though she's been strongly encouraged to step down. Uh, she's currently um, in hiding in her Warringah residents, um, but today Scott Morrison will be strongly encouraged to disendorse her. Well, if that is all that we have for the news headlines, we'll be back to wrap up the show after these messages. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, It's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But... 
don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Do you love Channel 31? Do you have a favourite program you just can't miss? Or even a favourite Channel 31 personality? If you love your local community TV station, well, there is a way you can help. Head along to c31.org.au and click the big old donate button. Your contribution to your local station will help to keep us on the air. Making more of the quality TV you know and love. Plus, you'll help to make sure our team can continue to provide access, training and education behind the scenes to hundreds of young Victorians. That's c31.org.au. And click on the big donate button. Thank you. A 3CR supporter. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ plus communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme, for more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan. Okay, welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, everyone. Uh, we are nearly at the end of our show, so um, how about we wrap up? what we listened to today. Uh, first up, we replayed an interview that Gemma and Sue had with Linda Fenton on Done by Law. Really interesting case. Um, Linda was the first woman, Australian woman to sue her employer for being unfairly dismissed whilst on maternity leave. She's also written a book about it, so you can check that out. It's called Strong Women Cry Too, Rising from the Black Hole. And if you wanted to revisit that episode, uh, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash done by law. We then heard from Ezekiel Thibault, who is a um, lecturer at a university in Hong Kong, um, specialising in moral and philo- uh, political philosophy. And she spoke to us about the French presidential election that is on right now. They had their first round on April 10th, um, and the second round, which is between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen, is taking place um, on Sunday, April 24th. Uh, After that, we heard from Caroline, who is an educator and um, resident of the city of Port Phillip. Recently, she had had um, a couple of political posters up uh, in her window of the apartment that she owns just, you know, for the election. And she was told by body corporate that she couldn't have them up there. So we talked about that particular situation of hers. And we also discussed the importance of um, being engaged in politics and in debate, um, uh, especially during an election. Um, And then Carnegie. 
Uh, and then we spoke with Gemma Caffarella, who is a barrister and is also on the chair of Liberty Victoria's Government Regulation and Equality Committee about her experiences living with endometriosis and adenomyosis and why that is an important workplace issue. Awesome. Well, as always, if you'd like to revisit this episode, check out um, or check out any of the um, articles, reports, anything that we've talked about, uh, make sure you visit um, 3cr.org.au slash Tuesday Breakfast. Um, stay tuned. Accent of Women is up next. And uh, stay tuned for Wednesday Breakfast tomorrow at 7am. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.